Hey everyone, it's Laura Lee Siemens. We have some more rules for our politically correct game. The UN uses Thomas the Tank to indoctrinate your kids. Canada is about to sign away the sovereignty of our borders. And female genital mutilation is no longer a federal crime in the United States. So basically, it's going to be a fun episode. Well, this is probably going to be a bit of a longer episode. Uh, there are some things I want to talk about that will take a little bit of time to explain. And there were just too many stories for me to just pick three. I will try to not be too long. Also, for homeschooling families that I know listen to this podcast, we're going to be talking about some issues that will not be appropriate for little ones. So maybe listen ahead first so you can decide if this is an episode you want your children to hear. We're going to start off with our segment where we look at the new rules for political correctness. So today, we're going to look at Charlie Brown. So Charles M. Schultz, nicknamed Sparky, created Charlie Brown. And during the height of the civil rights movement, Charles added a black character named Franklin. It was actually July 31st, 1968. Now, some people were outraged that a black character would be in their Sunday Funnies comic strip, but Charles would not back down. Now, you're thinking, that's a good thing, right? Okay, well, just wait for it. So, November the 20th, 1973, a Thanksgiving special airs on CBC. In the most famous scene, the children and Snoopy look around the garage and take items they see to create a Thanksgiving table. The ping pong table is the table, and each of the children grab a different kind of chair and pull up to sit at the table. Franklin grabs a beach chair and sits at the table. The show wins an Emmy. You're probably still waiting for the part where it's horrible, right? Well, beach chairs are short, shorter than other chairs. So the table Franklin is sitting at, he is shorter than the other children. So clearly it was racist and must be banned. It's actually kind of sad because it was aired every November since 1973. But we all want to be good citizens, right? So banished it is. No more Snoopy at Thanksgiving. I have this really sneaky suspicion that we might end up finding something wrong with a Christmas special as well. All right, this is not the only beloved cartoon we can no longer watch and pass on to our children. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is also banned now. I mean, obviously, can't believe we waited this long. The reindeer are all bullies. Santa even gets into the bullying. And the only reason they stop bullying him is that they end up using him. So clearly, it's teaching that bullying is okay. And also, if you are bullied, and then the bullies demand you do something for them, like, I don't know, use your glowing nose to light the way through the night sky, then you have to obey the bullies. I'm actually surprised it took this long for us all to be so woke to get rid of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Now, if you're thinking, I saw a different message in that cartoon, like one to be okay with who you are 
and maybe the opposite to not bully people and not make fun of people. But if that's the message you thought you saw, no, that's not the message that they were actually trying to give you. The actual message was that bullying is great and if you are bullied, you should just do whatever the bullies tell you to do. So we cross off Snoopy and Rudolph from our list of holiday classics and then we all get to be good citizens. All right, so that is our rules for this week. I know it's hard to keep up with all the politically correct rules, but I know it's important for everyone that we're all extremely good politically correct citizens. All right, so the hot topic for this week. Well, before we get to that, one year ago, a 36-year-old man named Roger was killed, and he was a border protection agent. So migrants were crossing the border illegally at a non-port of entrance and began throwing rocks at the border agents and Roger was hit. So he was taken to the hospital and he died. That was one year ago this month. Now, one year later, border patrol agents are being attacked again, both physically and in the media. And the agents have a really hard task. What some people don't know is things like the cartels make about $500 million a year smuggling illegal immigrants across the border. And they're horrible people that take advantage of the people they're smuggling. In fact, 80% of the women who cross are raped, even the young girls. And that's why they all go on birth control before they start the journey. The drug business is huge crossing the border too. In fact, in 2017, the U.S. border stopped 2,370 pounds of fentanyl. That's enough to kill every single American citizen. Over the last months, we have watched a caravan cross country after country heading towards the United States, and they plan on marching into the United States. Trump has had a firm no on that. As the caravan marches, they're burning American flags. They're waving flags from their home country. And this week, some of them reached the border, a few thousand. There's two more caravans on their way with thousands more. They began running at the border, throwing rocks and also throwing broken cement. And the border agents fired tear gas into the crowd to stop them from coming in. Now, the migrants are mostly young men, but they have put women and children in the front to make sure if anyone is hurt, it will be the women and the children. That's pure evil. And that way, they will have the picture they need for the propaganda to paint America as a bad guy and the people invading the country, throwing the rocks, burning the American flags. Those are the victims. This is the, actually the same tactic that Islamists use when they are attacking the Israel border. And it works. The media and the movie stars are all outraged. Outraged. Trump is a horrible, heartless man who gasses little children. Although, the only picture that involved little kids was one woman holding on to two kids with no pants or shoes on. Which leads me to just a few questions. For example, there's a tented area for people to stay while they wait to find out what's going to happen. And the tented area was not hit with tear gas. The gas was sent at people running at the border. So was this mom running at the border with her two little kids who had no pants or shoes on? So she was like, diapers and a shirt, great. You're dressed perfect for storming the border of another country that has said explicitly that they're not gonna let us in. That seems logical to you. And then of course, they were interviewed later and they're all sitting nice with clothes on and they're perfectly fine. So they did have pants and shoes, but they didn't wear them the day they decided to storm the border as toddlers. 
It's just kind of a little bit of a weird story. Not to mention that firing tear gas to stop invaders at the border isn't really a new thing. Obama deployed it 26 times in 2012 and 27 times in 2013. And that's just that particular spray. Pepper spray is used way more frequently. In fact, in 2013, the border agents sprayed pepper spray 151 times. Of course, no one's outraged when Obama does it. But the story is still ongoing. Will America be forced to open its borders and allow the migrants to come in? I mean, why is there suddenly a push for open borders? Is this really what's being demanded of Western countries, that we just have open borders? Well, to find out more on this, we have to go back to 2016. It's 2016 in the UN headquarters overlooking the East Rivers in New York. A document is being drafted, the New York Declaration. In this declaration is a paragraph labeled the Global Compact for Migrants. There are six objectives in this paragraph. The first sentence is a fluffy sentence about how we all need to care about each other and all humans are valuable. I agree, sounds very nice. The very next sentence is terrifying. It says, and I quote, the compact will make an important contribution to global governing. We read that again. The compact will make an important contribution to global governing. This paragraph was to be the beginning of the UN literally taking over the world. The paragraph went on to make it clear that migration must be seen as a human right. Every country must accept all migrants coming for any reason. Now, 2016 ends with an election and Donald Trump becomes a new president. The new president throws a huge wrench into the plan. There's no way Trump is having anything to do with the New York Declaration. At the same time, the UN was trying to take a large section of Israel away, and Obama was going along with it. But before Trump was even sworn in, that was ended also. But the New York Declaration was not over yet, and neither was that particular paragraph. What was needed was a way to convince the citizens that migrants should be allowed to enter their country for any reason. In 2016, nobody would have gone along with that idea. But just two years later, many Americans are demanding that their own borders be opened and caravans of migrants be allowed to enter. And the media is encouraging this. After the election of 2016, a new path was taken. In that same UN building overlooking the water, Megan Paschal was meeting with UN staff members. Megan works for Mattel Incorporated and is in charge of a product that's been on the shelves for more than 70 years. A little train named Thomas. Now, why would Megan be meeting with UN staff to talk about a toy train? The office is full of staff and also computer screens where UN staff are Skyping in from around the world. This is clearly a very important meeting. Staff are, are Skyping in from all around, including one from Africa, an African program advisor for the UN Women. She is Skyping in from Kenya. What the UN is going to do is help Megan create a more woke version of Thomas the Train. It will take 18 months of meetings and plannings before the new woke version of Thomas the Train is completed. Now, why would the UN care about a fictional train that tells stories for kids two to five years old? 
Well, Thomas is a global franchise in a lot of countries and in a lot of languages. Parents don't really pay attention to Thomas. He's seen by everyone as a safe viewing option for children. The outreach capacity is actually amazing. The writers and the UN delegates decide they will come up with a plan to incorporate the UN Sustainable Development Goals into the show. Each goal has to be looked at to see how it can fit into the show designed for two to five-year-olds. The writers of the show are not happy. This is annoying, and it's going to make for bad scripts, but they're not listened to. The UN delegates are now running the show. Six of the goals are picked, and ideas of how to incorporate the goals into the show are discussed. What the group finalizes on after 18 months is a new show called Thomas and Friends, Big World, Big Adventures. In this new show, Thomas is forced to leave Sodar and will have to, for the first time, see the real world. New characters are invented, an orange car named Rebecca, an African car named Nia, and a Chinese engine named Hong Mei. Lines are written that will need to be added into the show. Here are some of the lines. Remember, we're talking kids two to five. Here's one. Nia can't go back home because she was displaced. And here's another one. Some think girls are weak, but I know that's not true. Gordon can pull an engine and Rebecca can pull the engine. If boys and girls aren't given the same opportunities, they might not be given the chance to work as equals, and that's not fair. Not only lines, plots are also drawn up, including a plot that involves a forest fire and a bird with a bag of potato chips on his head. This plot is to make sure kids are all growing up to be good environmentalists. Another person present at this meeting is Jeffrey Braze. He is the UN Chief of Non-Governmental Organizations, Relations, and Advocacy. What does that mean? It means his job is to create propaganda for the UN and get it into Western entertainment. He did have a huge plan with Warner Brothers. They worked together to create Wonder Woman. But that ended quickly when the Warner Brothers hired an Israeli woman to play Wonder Woman, and she refused to stop talking about how much she loved Israel. And we all know how the UN thinks about Jews and Israel. They hate them with a passion. So the UN cut ties with that project. But now here he is, finishing up a project with Thomas the Tank. One problem. You can't put UN in the credits. That's not going to go over well with the parents. Well, the few that pay attention. What you can do is put the letters SDG in the credits. SDG stands for the UN Sustainable Development Goals. In 2018, Thomas's new show came to ABC in Australia, the Super RTL in Germany, Televisia in Mexico, Treehouse in Canada, in the US, Thomas and Friends, which normally was on PBS, now changed its tracks and went to Nick Jr. Cartinio in, in Italy, Minimi in Poland, Telekids in the Netherlands, VTM in Belgium, and AMC Minimax in Eastern Europe, Hop in Israel, Channel One in Russia, and TV Cultura in Brazil. They all began airing this new UN version of Thomas the Tank. So there you go. Tots from around the world now have a new cartoon written by the UN with a globalist activism mixed in with a little bit of commercialism. Fantastic. Sounds just what the tots need. So while that was happening, what was happening to the New York Declaration? And more importantly, 
what happened to that one paragraph called UN Compact for Migration? Well, a man named Ahmed Hussan became the Minister of Immigration in Canada. He himself is a refugee from Somalia, and he begins working with the UN and helps take this one paragraph and turn it into a 34-page document. The document is called the UN Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration. Let's listen to that again. The UN Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and regular migration. Now, just a side note, this is the same man, Ahmed Hussan, that won't give visas to two little kids who've been adopted by Canadian families to come to Canada. So we're going to take an unnumbered amount of migrants, but we're not going to take those two little kids. To learn more about those two little kids, check out my website, lauraleesiemens.com, and under the podcast, the story was just put out this week, so go ahead and listen to it and share it. All right, so back to this. It's important here to stop for a minute and take some clarifications. First of all, a refugee is a person fleeing persecution. For example, a Christian, uh, an atheist, or a homosexual fleeing an Islamic country. That is a refugee and has legal ways to enter a country. Immigration is also a legal way to enter the country. My family came from Mexico and Germany, and I have many friends that are immigrants. The process takes time. And the government can allow or not allow someone to immigrate to Canada. Migration is not legal. Migration is, for example, the caravan that is trying to get through the American border. That's migration. This document is not about refugees or immigrants. This is about migration. It is the very title of the document. In this document, the idea is that migration is now so common and every country has to deal with it. The term illegal immigrant is not used. Instead, the term irregular migration is used. Does that sound familiar? That's the same term that Mohammed Hassan and Justin Trudeau have been using when they talk about the illegal entries happening in our country. And just for a fun fact side note, in October of this year, we had 6,000 illegal entries or irregular migration as Trudeau calls it. 1,334 from Roxham Road in Quebec, 23 from Manitoba, 37 from BC, and the rest were coming in through the country through a port of entry. So 6,000 in one month. We have 55,000 so far this year. And I'm guessing once we sign this document in a few weeks, that number is going to skyrocket. And if you're wondering if this is normal, under Harper, we had around 10,000 a year, which is a lot, but not even close to 55,000. Okay, so back to this pack that we're about to sign. The compact says that it's non-binding, which means the UN can't enforce it even if you do sign up. However, that doesn't really make me feel better about it, especially since Canada is helping to write it. Canada was the first country to endorse it and has said that they will pressure every other country to join. This is a document that will create a large amount of migrants from Islamic countries to the West. Now, I understand there are a lot of people in Islamic countries that need to escape. The Jewish people have obviously left a long time ago, and any Jewish person in an Islamic country would be killed immediately. Christians need to leave. Atheists really need to leave. Homosexuals need to leave. But that's a different thing. And again, to clarify, we're not talking about refugees here. In fact, here is a quote. It cannot be stressed enough that this agreement is not about fleeing persecution or their rights to protection under international law. 
Instead, this agreement is a radical idea that migration for any reason is something that needs to be promoted, enabled, and protected. End quote. The Migration Pact will make migration a human right. Every nation that signs it will be giving its sovereignty to the UN. There will no longer be such thing as an illegal immigrant. All immigrants will be migrants, and that is now a human right. Here's a quote from the document. Quote, Migrants are entitled to the same universal human rights and fundamental freedoms which are respected and fulfilled at the time. End quote. This sounds really nice until we ask some questions. What do you mean by universal human rights and fundamental freedoms? Does this mean free health care, schooling, housing? The language is just very vague. Europe tried this and it didn't go well for them. They had 205 terrorist attacks just in the year 2017 alone. So what about this plan? Well, it has 23 objectives. Here's just a few of the things Canada will agree to do. We're going to start by putting together a website that will basically advertise why migrants should come to Canada. We'll talk about what kind of training and educational opportunities we'll give them. The website will tell them about any laws that we have here in Canada. We'll tell about the living costs here in Canada, the living conditions as well. Basically, we're going to create a website that will tell them why Canada is awesome, how to get here, and what free stuff will get them once they come. What the pact also tells us is that it's up to us, Canada, to reduce any risk the migrant will have coming to our country and give them any assistance that they need. What does that mean? We have United States and the ocean. Will we be providing transportation to our country? And what assistance will we be giving them? And also, who is going to pay for that? All of this has to be done in the language of the migrant. So, of course, that's another layer of costs. And also, something I feel Quebec might have a problem with. They don't even want to put things in English. Once the migrant has arrived in Canada, then we'll need to provide the migrant with targeted, gender-responsive, child-sensitive accessibility and comprehensive information. Also, free legal services and guidance on their rights and obligations on how to comply with national and local laws. We will need to help them obtain work, residence permits, and access to basic services. So I have a question. What do they mean by basic services? And also, who is going to pay for all of that stuff? Remember here, we're talking about migrants, not refugees. Anyone can come in. It will be open border. Now, the pact does say that countries will still have their borders and they'll be allowed to refuse entry. However, if migrants come into the country, they cannot use any force to protect their border. So if you can't protect your border and you can use no force to stop somebody from coming into your country, then you don't have a border. One of the troubling objectives comes with number 16. Here it is, and I'll quote it for you. Empowered to realize full inclusion and social cohesion. Now, how do they want to do that? Well, here's what they say, another quote. Promote mutual respect for the cultures, traditions, and customs of communities of distinctions and migrants by, ready for this? Exchanging and implementing best practices of integration policies, programs, and activities including on the ways to promote acceptance of diversity and facilitate social cohesion and inclusion. So what are we going to do here in Canada? Are we going to expect the migrants to be Canadian, to embrace our way of life, our Canadian traditions? No, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to promote the customs and practices of the country that they're leaving. 
Now remember, it's very unlikely the West is going to be going to Islamic countries. No, it will be Islamic countries coming here. And there's a few customs I'm not really cool with. You know, killing gays, marrying children, female genital mutilation, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, dressing little boys up like girls and then raping them, killing your daughters if they start acting too Western. They call that honor killing. Is nothing honorable about it. Beating your wife, teaching your children that their goal in life is to stab a Jew, or teaching your children if they kill themselves while killing other people, they get to go to heaven and have a whole bunch of virgins. The list goes on and on. And, you know, I'm not really going to say, hey, cool, a new custom. Well, all cultures are equal. Here's a fun fact. Not all cultures are equal, and some cultures are actually evil. Objective 16 also says that migrants must be given inclusion into all labor markets, education, and health services, and they have to have the same inclusion as a citizen. So our schools and hospitals that we pay for, for with our tax dollars, they have to have access to all of it. Remember, we're not talking refugee here. We're talking migrant. So come to Canada. We'll learn your customs. We'll give you a health card so you can use all of our health benefits. Your kids can go to our schools. We'll make sure you have work. I see a few possible problems. The pact also knows that not everyone's going to like this idea. You think? Here's what they say about that. Quote, recognizing that societies are undergoing demographic, economic, social, and environmental changes at different scales that may have been resulted from migration. Now, what does that mean? I'll translate it. Some parts of society might find that this actually sucks. So how is the UN going to solve this? Here we go. Another quote. Disagreement with the agenda will not be tolerated. States will work to dispel misleading narratives that generate negative perceptions of migrants. Here's another quote. States will promote independent, objective, and quality reporting of media outlets, including internet-based information. How are you going to do that? Here we go. Keep quoting. By educating media professionals on migration-related issues and terminology. Whoa, stop the presses. So the UN is going to demand that Canada educates its journalists and then tells them the terminology to use. It actually gets even more interesting when you keep on reading. Here we go. Investing in ethical reporting standards and advertising and stopping all public funding or material support to a media outlet that systematically promotes intolerance, xenophobia, racism, and any form of discrimination towards migrants in full respect of freedom of the press. Wait, there is not freedom of the press if you are educating them, giving them the terminology, and then punishing them if they don't say what you want them to say. That is actually the opposite of freedom of the press. And Trudeau has already started that. This week, he announced he's going to give $600 million, listen to that again, $600 million of your tax dollars every year to the press as long as they meet his criteria of journalism. And one of those guidelines, no critical discussion on migration. So this money does not go to a journalist, it goes to the media outlets. So if a journalist wants to speak the truth, their bosses won't let them because the media outlet will not be eligible for the money if they do. 
So even before the pact is implemented here in Canada, Justin has made sure the journalists will be silent. What are some possible concerns journalists might have brought up? Well, how about how there was no consultation done with the citizens of Canada before this happened? Maybe, can't, maybe Canadians don't want to just hand our borders over to the UN. Maybe we don't like the idea of having to say yes to everyone who asks to move here. We are a democracy last time I checked and we never voted on this. Maybe we could talk about how we're going to pay for this. The average Canadian citizen already pays 42.5% of their earnings in taxes. Is this going to go up? Will we be paying more taxes or will we lose some of the things our taxes are covering right now? Because what the pact tells us is that every migrant is going to cost a lot of money. Not to mention the $600 million a year to pay off the journalists to not ask these questions. Some estimate this cost is going to cost Canada trillions of dollars a year. What about some of the problems that are in the document? Like when it says countries have to have free speech and then says anyone who says anything bad about the plan should be punished. Or when it says free press and then also says to bribe them, educate them, give them the terminology and then punish them if they don't do it. What about diseases? Diseases that might come. Is our healthcare ready for a possible outbreak of diseases that we've never had in North America? What about our schools? Will our teachers be able to still teach if there's suddenly an extra population of students that don't speak English? How full will our schools be? And what will happen to the Canadian students that we already have, especially the ones that need extra help? What if crime suddenly increases? Europe had a problem with that, especially France. Exactly how many migrants are we bringing here? Is there going to be a cap? Will be there be a number that eventually says, sorry, Canada's full? What about the refugees, those fleeing persecution? If we bring the very same people here to Canada that the refugees are fleeing from, what happens to those refugees? And then, of course, there's ISIS. Yeah, we, I know we already have members of ISIS here, but maybe let's not bring in any more. Those are just a few problems I can see just off the top of my head. Not to mention that the UN will be in charge and we didn't vote for them. There's no one higher than the UN. They're the top. There is no one the UN answers to. Now, why would the UN think this is necessary? Wait for it. Are you ready? Climate change. That's right. They're saying we have to do this because of climate change. Now, can I say I told you so? I mean, I told you climate change was a hoax and would be used by the UN to gain control of our country. And I've been saying that for about five years. Well, here we go. All right. At this point, you're probably saying, Laura Lee, you don't actually believe this, do you? I mean, you don't think Canada's writing something with the UN that's going to take away our sovereignty and end up opening our borders to whoever wants to come here. I mean, come on, you're better than this. You're not a crazy conspiracy person. This is kind of beneath you. And I know some of you are thinking that. Well, let's just see what the other Western countries are thinking about this pact. Australia has said, we're not going to sign this document. It will mean surrendering our sovereignty to the UN. Austria has said they can't sign it because Austria's sovereignty is their highest priority. While Germany is planning on signing it, it's become a hot button issue that might cause her to lose her position in government. The party fighting against her has said, and I quote, the pact is a hidden resettlement plan for more economic migrants. 
Hungarian government has said the pact will lead to a fresh wave of migration because it concerns the fact that migration is a positive process that must be encouraged and accordingly new migration channels must be opened and migrants cannot be differentiated based on their legal status. Because of this, Hungary will not sign the document. The United States is just a hard pass. Nothing but a big hell no. So far, the countries that have said, no, thank you, will pass on giving away our sovereignty. The United States, Hungary, Slovakia, Poland, Austria, Australia, Israel, and just today, Croatia said that they will also pass on this. In a few weeks, the UN will meet. They will discuss and ratify the agreement. If Canada signs, the UN will then decide how our borders and migration will work. The Conservative Party brought this up in the House and asked Trudeau what he was going to do. And he said he supports it 100% and is excited that Canada will be taking a lead on this and setting an example for the world. Okay, so when I discuss this with Christians, I hear something that makes me actually kind of angry. It goes something like this. It's the idea that we as Canadians don't deserve to live in a free country. The idea that our freedom wasn't earned, but it was just given to us. This is often mixed with spirituality in this way. God put you here in Canada and gave you this free land. He could have just as easily put you in a country that's poor and has no freedom. Some people say, I won the lottery by being born in Canada. I'm going to answer this in two ways. One from a Christian point of view, and then secondly from a historically accurate point of view. Let's start with a Christian point of view. This argument stems from a Mormon theology. Mormonism was founded by Joseph Smith, who believed that all souls were created at the beginning of time. And he believed when a woman got pregnant, God took one of the souls that had already been created and placed that soul into the woman. If this belief is true, then it would be true that it was God who put my soul into a body here in Canada. However, if you believe as Christians do that at the moment of conception, our soul comes into existence, then I was born here in Canada because my birth mother and father had sex here in Canada and then stayed here in Canada for nine months and then I was born here in Canada. I guess if you hold to a really strict Calvinistic argument, you could say that God made my birth parents have sex here in Canada and then made them stay here in Canada, but that has some flaws because my birth parents were not married and my birth mom, who was a Christian, knew the relationship was going against God's plan for her. So if you hold onto that belief, you would have to say that it was God that forced her to sin by making her be in a relationship with my birth father. I believe God gives us free will and he's given us the ability to make choices for ourselves and we have to live with the consequences of those choices and I was a consequence of that choice. So there are definitely some theological problems with the statement that God put me in Canada. Secondly, let's look at the question historically. Explorers came to the north to explore and find a new land, but that's not why the settlers came. The Christians in England were under heavy persecution. They were burned at the stake. They were beheaded. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. Their homes were burned to the ground, but through it all, they continued to preach and search for the truth. They refused to give up. The church would not allow itself to be controlled by the crown, and they met in secret. When the king decided to build colonies in the new land, the members of the underground church signed up. The ones who were chosen had to leave their family and friends, knowing they would never see them again. They would take the very dangerous journey across the ocean, knowing that many would not survive the trip. The ones that survived the trip had to build a whole new community. There was no food, and the winters were harsh, and many died. 
Why would they do this? They believed that a new country could be formed, a country where people could worship God the way they wanted. They could have a personal relationship with God. The government would have no say in how or where they worshiped. That had not happened in all of Christian history. The government had always had some kind of say, and for the most part, it had been bad for those who wanted to study the Bible and decide for themselves what God was saying. This proved to be difficult. The pilgrims, once they formed these new colonies, had a hard time letting go of the need to follow leadership when it came to spirituality. It took years and generations to break free from this way of thinking. North American colonies over time were formed into the United States of America and Canada. Most who wanted to stay loyal to the crown moved to the colonies that became Canada. But even there, we still today loyal to the crown. But the spiritual freedom from the crown was still something that Canadian colonies were adamant about. Right from the beginning of the forming of Canada, our forefathers had to fight to keep our country a free country. World War I and World War II are examples of our men, and in some cases our boys, fighting and dying so we could remain a free country. If you believe that our freedom was free and Canada and Canadians don't, didn't earn it, I suggest you visit your local legion. Ask them for a copy of the Military Service Recognition Book. What you will find is a large book with every person who fought for your freedom from your town in the area where you live. In the area where I live, my local legion has a book of almost 900 pages, and each page has a story of at least three soldiers. To say that our freedom was not earned is actually disgusting. It is wrong on so many levels, but for the most part, it is a huge slap in the face to all the people who are serving now and who have served in the past in our armed forces. Physically fighting is not the only way we fight to keep our country free. We fight with the word, both the spoken and the written word. We fight to keep our freedom and we fight to regain the freedom that has slipped away. We stand up to our government, even if it means being punished by the liberal people of society. Well, some of us do. One example is Jordan Peterson. While I disagree with him on all of his theology, I'm a fan of his because he stood up to our government and to our universities and refused to have his free speech taken away. And just that made him famous. Imagine if all of us could do that. A book I recommend that everyone reads is The Suicide of the West by Jonah Goldberg. One of my favorite all-time politicians is Ronald Reagan. And he said, Freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation away from distinction. It is not ours by inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation, for it comes only once to a people. Those who have known freedom and then lost it have never known it again. I want to make it clear. It's not that I believe we as North Americans are solely responsible for our freedom. I do believe that God has granted us freedom, but he granted it to us because we rose up and demanded it. Then we have fought to keep it. God gives to those who work. That freedom can disappear just as fast if we believe there's nothing for us to do to keep it. Part of thinking with maturity is understanding that two things can be true at the same time. Think about it this way. When we sit down as a family, for a meal, the first thing we do is thank God for the food. However, every once in a while, I have to remind my kids, the food didn't show up on their plate by magic. And the dishes also not cleaned up by magic. They have a mom who went to the grocery store, bought food, and then prepared it. And now, children, you need to be part of the process as well. And you'll be the ones who clean it up. 
Yes, we thank God for providing for us. We also recognize the person who was responsible. And when a child doesn't get this concept, it's just a matter of maturity. This is the same way I feel about those who don't recognize our forefathers and our troops are responsible for giving us a free country and is our responsibility to keep it free. So what do we do as Christians? Well, let's start by being thankful. Thank a vet and do it today. We can thank God for our free country. It is his grace that allowed us to continue to fight for our freedom. And then we pray for our brothers and sisters that are living in countries that don't have freedom. We use the spoken and written word to encourage them to stand up and fight so that they can have freedom too. Then we stop being afraid of using the words we need to spread more freedom. I'm sick of people telling me I need to be nicer on social media. Like I need to talk more about, I don't know, cat videos or post pictures of the food I ate today. Stop talking about things like politics and religion. Why would I talk about anything else? Politics and religion are the only things that matter. We need to not be afraid to say when one religion is dominating the problems of the world. When countries that had freedom have lost it because one particular religion demands that there be no freedom, let's not be afraid to point that out. Now, the next story actually shows this point very clearly. What happens if a different culture comes to North America but doesn't leave behind their culture or customs? Could North America be changed and has it already been changed? That's the question. Could we lose the values that we have fought for and our forefathers have fought for? In 1994, the U.S. Senator Henry Reid stood up in Congress and spoke. He said, I want everyone within the sound of my voice to understand that what I'm going to talk about here today does not deal with religion and it does not deal with sex. It deals with the violation of a person's human rights. It deals with the degradation of women and young girls. It deals with the most inhumane thing a person can imagine. This started the work to create a new law. In 1996, I was sitting in my OAC politics class in high school. I was horrified, disgusted, and outraged. I just read an essay on a practice done in Islamic countries. Islamic practices were very foreign to me at the time. I had a friend that was Muslim, and really one of the most popular guys in our school was Muslim, but the practices of Islam I really knew nothing about. It was just a different religion than I had. September 11th would not happen for a few more years, and no one really knew or cared about this religion. But then I read about a practice called female genital mutilation where a young girl would be held down, and then part of her genitals would be cut off. In many aspects, her body would be sewn shut so she would have to see a doctor before she could have sex. It was a way of making sure the girl would stay pure. Sex would not be enjoyable for the girl. It would only be a way to please the man. I sat there learning about this and wanted to go across the world and do something, anything to stop this practice. Little did I know that before my girls were the age I was at that moment, little girls in North America would be going through the same thing. I was reading that article in 1996 because that year, September 30th, 1996, a law was signed banning the practice in the United States. That seemed obvious to me sitting in my politics class. Of course, we would never allow this. But by 2012, a study showed that 513,000 American girls were at risk of this surgery. April the 12th, 2017, investigators were watching a doctor's clinic in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Lavinia Clinic was run by Dr. Falkenden Attar, a 55-year-old doctor, and his wife. On that night, his wife and another doctor, 44-year-old doctor, entered the clinic. This is what the investigators were waiting for. They had heard that Dr. Attar was allowing 
they had heard that Dr. Attar was allowing this other doctor to use his clinic to perform female genital mutilation. They had been tipped at this practice and believed that about 100 girls had been brought to this clinic. That night, nine girls are brought to the clinic, two seven-year-olds from Minnesota, four girls between the age of eight and 12 from Michigan, and three girls from Illinois. The investigators enter the clinic, the doctors are arrested, and the girls are taken, but they enter too late. The girls have already been mutilated. The parents are also arrested, and the parents claim they are simply cleansing their daughters. The girls were crying. They were bleeding heavily and screaming. The seven-year-old girls tell the investigators they were tricked into coming. They were told they were coming for a weekend getaway, a girl's weekend getaway. One girl said she'd come to the clinic because her tummy hurt. She had no idea what was going to happen to her. One girl said the pain went all the way down her leg and into her ankles. No anesthetic was used. The parents had planned on taking the part of the genital area that had been cut off and burying it in a religious ritual. Dr. Attar admits he's allowed the clinic to be used for this five to six times a year. Both doctors are arrested as well as six other adults. Their lawyer is Shannon Smith. They go to trial and the judge is Bernard Friedman. Shannon Smith argues that the federal law is unconstitutional and only a state law would be something that would be able to be followed. 27 states have banned the practice. Michigan was not one of them. After hearing the horrors of the story, Michigan passes a law. The judge agrees with the argument. He says the federal law is unconstitutional, that this is a state's issue. Since the law in Michigan was passed after the arrest, everyone is free to go home. The federal law in the states made America one of more than 30 countries that have banned the practice, but that law is now struck down by this judge. And that means any state that does not have a state law will practice. And that means any state that does not have the state law, the practice will continue. The women's rights movement had been silent on the issue. No one showed up in court with red capes on, even though this is an example of The Handmaid's Tale for sure. A religious group that cuts its little girls to cleanse them, and then they will not experience the joy in sex because it's only the enjoyment for the man? That seems like something that would make more sense than rioting at a court hearing where Kavanaugh may have been inappropriate 30 years in high school. But that's why feminism is a joke. All right, this was a really emotional episode. Actually, I had to walk away from my computer while doing the research because I kept getting more and more angry. Driving yesterday, I was praying, but I couldn't pray that this would not happen. I couldn't pray that God would stop the UN from forming into a one world government. I couldn't pray that because I know it's going to happen. I could only pray, thy will be done. You see, my father has taught me a lot about prophecy in the Bible. Most pastors will only teach the first few chapters of Daniel and Revelation and don't even touch Ezekiel. We learn about Daniel not eating the king's meat, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, but the rest of the book is never taught in church. In Revelation, we learn about the different churches and how God feels about them, but once that part's done, we close the book. Why? I'm not really sure. Maybe our preachers think their congregation are too stupid to understand it. Maybe they're too lazy to find a way to present it. Maybe they don't want to deal with the blowback of people not agreeing with a pre-trib rapture point of view. Or maybe Satan uses all of those excuses to stop the Bible from being taught. 
I read those passages and studied them. And I can tell you that there will be a one world government. And God describes it as a beast with iron teeth and horns and with with one horn that has an all seeing eye. Kind of a terrifying description of a government that's going to rule the world. Revelation also describes this government as a beast. So we know it will happen and we know there will be one government that will rule the world. And that government will come saying peace and prosperity for all, but will actually bring death. But the Bible also says that just like the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Just like Noah, God gave man a way, a kind of a way out before the flood. Noah was given the job to build a boat and all who were on the boat were saved from the flood. God gave us a way out as well. The way out is Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So when you put our trust in Jesus and ask him to forgive our sins, we enter his boat, his way of escape. He will take us away from the beast of Daniel in Revelation who's going to devour the earth. The Bible says he will come with the sound of a trump and the dead in Christ will rise first and all that remain and are alive in him will be caught up into the clouds to be with him forever. That's me. That's where I will be. And it can be you as well. Start by believing Jesus is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. He is God and he can forgive your sins. And then tell him you're sorry for your sins and ask him to save you. I'm Lorelei Siemens. See you next week.